0: When Kristen and I were first married, uh, one of the biggest problems that we had was the fact that we made assumptions about each other. I think of all the assumptions we made, uh, one of the most foolish was that we actually knew each other. I think we both kind of assumed that we knew each other, we just did, obviously, and that showed itself in a lot of different ways. For one, we'd get frustrated when the other person wouldn't respond to a situation in a way we assumed they knew they should. You know what I'm talking about. This happens when you think the other person should just be so in tune with you that they can read your mind, like she can just know how I want her to respond to me. Another funny thing, that I assumed about her was that she's kind of like me. (laughs) Now, this wasn't a conscious assumption on my part, but it happened. And I finally figured out after like the tenth time when she wasn't as excited as I thought she should be when I surprised her with some last-minute overnight getaway. I just couldn't really get it that she didn't like surprises. I like surprises. Why doesn't she? You see, I just kind of assumed that that she was like me. So what I finally figured out, and what I continue to figure out, is that I have to study her. I have to study her for who she is. What food does she like and not like? What activities does she enjoy or not enjoy? In this particular situation, would she prefer for me to solve the problems? Yes. (laughs) Or just listen. No. (laughs) I also figured out that I need to love my wife for who she is. Not who I imagine her to be or who I might wish she might be in certain ways. For a time, I was actually a little bit sore about her not liking surprises. Uh, But I eventually stopped throwing a pity party for myself, and I decided to love her for who she is, which meant ruining surprises and telling her ahead of time. Now, is this a sermon about marriage? No, it's not. It's a sermon about knowing God. But I think there are a lot of similarities. You see, you cannot just assume that you know God. You have got to study Him for who He's revealed Himself to be in His Word. And this, friends, is contrary to human nature. Human nature assumes that God is similar to ourselves. God can't be like that because that doesn't make sense to me. Who's the standard of understanding God there? We are. But you see, you have got to know God and love God for who He actually is, not who you imagine Him to be. That's why I want to take four weeks to teach you about the Trinity. Because this doctrine speaks to the very essence of who God is. Here's my hope for the series. My hope is that you walk away understanding the Trinity, seeing the importance of the Trinity, and delighting In the Trinity. So let's get into it. We're going to start with some basic information. By the way, today particularly, you're going to be helped if you use that outline that I have for you printed in your bulletin. If you look at it, please don't fall down. We're not going to cover every text. First things first, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Doctrine means teaching, by the way. Doctrine means body of belief. What do we believe about the Trinity? Put simply, it's this There is only one God, and this one God exists eternally in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let's take that and just break it down for a moment and look at the individual statements. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This, friends, is like Awana verse number one that every Israelite kid would have memorized right out of the gate. I can imagine a father asking his son in Israel, little Joseph, what do you believe about God? And Joseph would turn to his father and he would say, Father, I believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the nations around them believed in many gods, many so-called gods, but God says that's not true. There is no sun god. There is no moon god. There is no God of the crops or God of the rain. There is only me, the Lord God of heaven and earth. So there is only one God. This is monotheism, monotheism, one God, not polytheism, many gods. So there is one God, and this one God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14 is in the New Testament. If you're new to looking at the Bible, it's divided into two big sections, the Old Testament, which is the first half. It's a little bit more than half. It's big. And then the New Testament. And the New Testament begins in Matthew. And so if you find Matthew... Go beyond Matthew, to Mark to Luke, to John, John chapter 14, and throw your eyes onto verse 15. John 14 is the big, bold 14, and then verse 15 is the smaller, not bold 15. John 14:15 says this, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth." Now, I don't know if you noticed, but you just saw the three, person of the, trin- the three persons of the Trinity there. Jesus speaks, that's the Son. He says, I will ask the Father, there's the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, there's the Holy Spirit. Throw your eyes onto verse 26, same chapter, verse 26. You're going to see Him again. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There's three persons there. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, what's the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, there is only one God And this one God exists eternally in three persons. That is a true and accurate expression of the Trinity. Now, is that hard to wrap your mind around? Well, sure. Sure, in a sense, it is. For that reason, there's always been efforts to come up with analogies to teach this. Like the Trinity's like water. Water can be found in three different forms liquid, ice, vapor. Bingo! Not bingo. Okay? That actually quite nicely describes the heresy of modalism that says that God is not three persons. God just appears in the form or expression or mode of three persons. I could go on and on and give you more analogies, but honestly, they're inadequate. And most of them end up teaching heresies. I'm not exaggerating. I actually get quite nervous whenever in Awana we come to the Trinity. And I'm like, okay, what's, what's the leader going to say? It's going to accidentally be heresy. Not on purpose. Here's the thing. I don't think God would have us understand this by way of analogy. Perhaps this is one reason why he forbids being depicted by images. Images and analogies are both inadequate to convey the glorious nature of our triune God. So let's understand it instead by turning to Scripture. So here's a question for you. Before we go further, let's ask what may be on your minds. Is this just philosophical mumbo-jumbo? Is this just the result of what one writer said, a bunch of cloistered theologians with too much time on their hands. No. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. And here's the second point this morning. How does Scripture teach us the doctrine of the Trinity? How does Scripture teach us the doctrine of the Trinity? First, by teaching us that God is one. We read Deuteronomy 6 a moment ago. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And this isn't a one-off text, double entendre intended. The consistent witness of Scripture is that there is only one God. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-nine. See now that I am He, and there is no God beside me. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Mark 12. The disciples ask Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He quotes Deuteronomy. Now this is clear, right? Super clear. You you know what else is clear? That each person of the Trinity is God. The Father is God. I think that's kind of an easy one for us. The Father is God. That's the consistent witness of Scripture. But the Son, too, is God. You see this both in direct statements and in how people relate to Jesus. As far as direct statements, let me just read you a few. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me, and I've got all of these on your outline, so you can look a a little bit later if you want. But consider a few texts with me. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he says this, "'Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God "'in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers.'" to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen to the end of that verse again. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who's the he? Well, clearly it's referring to God but clearly it's referring to Jesus because that's who bought the church with his blood. The conclusion is that Jesus is God. Romans 9.5, Paul says this, And from their race, according to the flesh, speaking of Israel, is the Christ who is God over all, Christ the Son is God over all. 1 John 5.20 The Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Jesus, the Son, is God. Those are just explicit, right? If we believe the Bible, those are just explicit. And be clear, we do believe the Bible. This truth is also clear in how people relate to him. And my favorite is Thomas. Thomas kind of gets a bad rap, right? Because he said, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to believe in Jesus unless I can actually see the scars, unless I can actually touch the scars. I'm not going to believe him but listen in to what he said when Jesus so graciously appeared to him John 20:27 20, Jesus said to Thomas put your finger here and see my hands A- and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe and Thomas answered him my lord And my God. Not only did Thomas believe that Jesus had in fact risen from the grave, Thomas believes that Jesus is in fact God. And does Jesus rebuke him? No, he does not. He receives the worship that is only appropriate for God. Why? Because Jesus is God. And so the Father is God. The Son is God. And the Scripture says teaches us also that the Holy Spirit is God. The first text I think of is Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira sell their home. They give some of it to the proceeds. They give some of the proceeds to the church. But the deal is they, they lie about what they sold it for and they pocket some of the money. Now listen to what Peter says. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now now keep in mind who did they lie to? The Holy Spirit. Ananias, why has Satan lied? Why has Satan Sorry, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, wait a second. I thought they lied to the Holy Spirit. They did. The Holy Spirit is God himself. In lying to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God. Another revealing text is Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I go from your spirit? Excuse me. Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The psalmist equates the Spirit of God with the presence of God. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? To be in the Spirit of God, to be near the Spirit of God, is to be near the presence of God. If I ascend to heaven, you, God, the Holy Spirit, are there. One more. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom. Boy, that verse is clear. The Lord is the Spirit. Clearly, the Spirit of God is God. And so, as you read through Scripture, what you see is clear teaching that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And this teaching is full-throated, full-bodied not decaffeinated. Who drinks decaf? Not in the morning. There's no hint of the Son or the Spirit being part God, mostly God, kinda a God. No, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all presented as being God, fully divine. One more way Scripture teaches us about the Trinity. It gives us Trinitarian formulations and patterns. You know, if you just read Scripture thoughtfully, you're going to see the Trinity often. Let me just read a few texts for you. Matthew 3.16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Son is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Matthew 28:18 Jesus said to them All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Romans 15:30 I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. We often conclude our services with this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You know, you might take some time this week, maybe a morning in your devotional routine. Take a look at these texts I gave you here. So many trinitarian formulations and patterns in scripture the bible when you prick it it bleeds trinity and so let me just circle back to where i started is this is this philosophical mumbo jumbo the result of theologians with too much time on their hands no It's the conclusion of the plain teaching of the Bible. There is obviously only one God, and yet it is also obvious that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God as well. And so we put it together. There is only one God, and this one God exists eternally in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, third point this morning. How did the church come to articulate and express the doctrine of the Trinity? Has the church always believed the Trinity? or, Or is this something that some cabal with power decided to cook up and require everybody to believe at some point in time? We love conspiracy theories. Well, that's a good question. The church came to articulate this first through reflection on Scripture. They did just what you did. They read their Bibles, and they they saw that there's only one God, and, and yet they saw, too, that Jesus clearly claimed divinity for himself, and the Spirit is presented as divine as well. As you read through the passages of the New Testament at Paul's trinitarian exclamations he is not struggling with the philosophy of this he's just glorying in the father and the son and the spirit trinitarian theology just naturally rises from the pages of scripture and so what you see as you look at the early church is not so much a defined presentation or articulation or defense of the Trinity. What you see is just an overall Trinitarian consciousness that comes out in the way the new church in the early church talks and the early church fathers talk. You just see an overall Trinitarian consciousness. Clearly, tightly expressed, defended, articulated, no! But it's there. Now as time passes, what happens is that the church's thought on the Trinity is refined and clarified and becomes more sophisticated because errors arise and the church has to respond to them. Two biggest errors the church faced in its early church in, in its early history, excuse me, two biggest errors something called modalism and then something called Arianism modalism came first. What is modalism? It held that there is only one God, so far so good, but it denied the three persons of the Trinity. Modalism taught that God revealed himself in three different ways, in three different modes. He reveals himself As Father, sometimes. He reveals himself as Son, sometimes. And he reveals himself as Spirit, sometimes. So, God is not three persons, according to modalism. He just appears as three persons. This was thought to be the only way to protect Christianity from from polytheism. So, what happened? is that God raised up men to do serious thinking and serious work and carefully articulate this doctrine in light of this challenge that's come concerning this doctrine. Maybe you've heard of Tertullian. Kids' names are getting so weird these days. Just name your kid Tertullian, and that would be a good option. He lived from 155 to 220, and his wording became the foundation for the church's articulation of the Trinity. God is one in essence or substance, yet three in persons. So, both truths preserved here. Maybe you've heard of Origen. He lived from 185 to 254. He also addressed and clarified the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the second major error in the early church was Arianism. Arianism sought to preserve the church from the error of polytheism by teaching that the Son of God was not fully God. Arian said that since the Son is the Son, that means that there was obviously a time when the Son did not exist. Well, that means that the Son is not fully God. By the way, that's not true, and I'm going to deal with that when we have the Sermon on the sun. And, by the way, do you know who modern-day Arians are? Mormons are modern-day Arians. Jehovah's Witnesses are modern-day Arians. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. So, this error actually began circulating in the early 300s. It was a huge controversy. It brought forth years of thought and writing from the likes of Athanasius, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nyanzas. Nyanzas? You just fake it till you make it, you know? And the end result was the Nicene Creed. Churches from all over the world convened to articulate and confess what it is that Scripture, in fact, teaches concerning the deity of the Son and the Trinity. The Nicene Creed people was written in A.D. 325, updated in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, and treasured by the Church of Jesus Christ ever since as an accurate presentation of the Bible's teaching. And so, where would the doctrine of the Trinity come from? Scripture. Has the church always believed in the Trinity? Yes! Articulated simply at first, and then clarified and more carefully expressed and defended as a result of the church responding to lies and heresy. Settled and confessed... Since 325 A.D. That's what we read this morning. Is this new? The result of a powerful cabal that made everybody believe something sometime? No. It's the clear teaching of the Bible and it's what the church has always believed. Now I want to downshift and I want to change lanes. I've been driving down this information lane. You know, here's the info. You know, open up fire hose, begin flow, and you're just there. Okay. What I want to do now is I want you to see for yourself... And ask the question, why does this matter? Why does this matter? One reason Christians might not... One reason why Christians may not think this doctrine is particularly important is because it's not highly practicable. I mean, how does the Trinity affect how I live on Monday? Right? What what value does the Trinity have to do with me? I want to push back on that thinking. Let me just tell you, the Trinity doesn't have a lot to do with you. It has a lot to do with God. And that matters because in the words of Michael Reeves, quote, Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It is about knowing God. To know and grow to enjoy Him is what we are saved for, end quote. Friends, can you imagine yourself only being interested in knowing your spouse to the degree that you actually just know how to relate to your spouse? Can you imagine for a second being like, well, I don't care about what he or she is really like. I just care about whatever I need to know so that I can relate to her or him and not tick them off. That's crazy. The simple truth is you love your spouse and so you want to know your spouse. Now, I realize that's not true for every marriage. Some don't take an interest in the other person. Some don't pursue understanding. Some don't lean in to study in order to know the person and love the person as they really are. And the reality is those marriages struggle. Maybe that's why some of you struggle in your relationship with God. Maybe your approach to Christianity is far too focused on how does this apply to me? Instead of, I want to know and love my God for who He is. Brothers and sisters, the Trinity reveals who God is. And so this matters because we want to know God. Amen? Another reason this matters is because if the Trinity is not true, then salvation's very foundation actually crumbles underneath your feet and will lead you directly into hell. If the Son is not divine, then brothers and sisters, there is no salvation. The key testimony and witness of Scripture throughout is that only God can save. If Jesus was merely a man, even a perfect man, then his death on the cross would mean nothing. Only God can satisfy God's justice. The Son had to be divine in order for his death on the cross to provide a redemptive solution to our problems and that we might be saved from our sin. If the Son is not divine, then we are lost. And so let the penny drop. What that means is that for those who don't affirm the Trinity, they can't be Christians. They're condemned. Boy, that sounds unreasonable, but it's quite reasonable because if the Son is not God, then you have not been saved. And if the Son is not a distinct person, then think about this, then the divine ceased to exist on the cross. If God only appears as certain manifestations, modalism, and then that means God himself died. Th- that's just really troubling. <laughs> you don't have to think too long about that to realize, whoa, that leads, you down, that leads you down a path of a lot of problems. But the Son is divine. And God is triune. And from all eternity, the Father, out of love for sinners, planned to send His Son to save us. And from all eternity, the sun delighted in that plan to take on flesh, live a righteous life and die a substitutionary death and then rise again. And then from all eternity, the Spirit delighted in the plan to be sent by the Father and the Son to come and apply the gospel to your hearts, convicting you of sin, causing you to see your need for Jesus Christ and giving you faith to believe and be saved and then continuing to transform you, protect you and lead you all the way to the heaven. Praise God for the Trinity. Salvation is Trinitarian. Without the Trinity, no salvation. Another reason why the Trinity is so absolutely vital is that it prevents idolatry. Isn't idolatry kind of a big deal? This is where you nod your head and say yes. If the Son is not divine, do you know what all of us are? We're idolaters. We're breaking the first and the second commandment because we unashamedly worship and adore Jesus Christ. We cry out with Thomas, my Lord and my God, because we've seen him by faith. But if he's not divine, then that's idolatry to confess that. And I'm condemned. And so are you. So... The Trinity prevents idolatry. Here's another reason why the Trinity is so important. The Trinity displays God's independence. Michael Reeves in his book says this, Single God, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with good sense of humor, end quote. That's funny because it's so ridiculous. But without the Trinity, it would be true. Let me ask you a question. Did God create because God was lonely? Let me ask you a question. Did God create because he needed fellowship? Let me ask you a question. Did God create because there was some lack in him? No. And the Trinity is why we know those things aren't true. For all eternity... God has been delighted within the persons of the Trinity. The Father delighting in the Son, the Son delighting in the Father, the Spirit delighting in the Son and the Father. There has been from all eternity beautiful, perfect, wonderful fellowship within the Trinity. This is incredible because what it means is that God did not create the world or you because he needed you. It means that he created the world and you as an outflow of his love and generosity. That's about 80 bajillion times better. And the Trinity is what undergirds that reality. You know, perhaps your view of God is being raised this morning. I hope that's true because I think that's what leads you to worship and see God not as a needy creature who's just begging for you to respond to him, but as a generous father who has offered to give his son for you, though he he didn't need to do that but out of love and generosity, he did. And so I wonder if some of you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ because frankly you just don't see how big and glorious God is. You think he's more like you, but he's not. And that's good. i tell you another reason why the Trinity is so important. It's because it separates Christianity from the all other world religions, chiefly Judaism and Islam. They happily confess that God is one, but they do not happily confess that God is one in three. Theologically, this is one of the most distinguishing factors of what we believe about God and why when we say, I believe in God, and the Muslim says, I believe in God, we know that's not the same God. The Trinity distinguishes God above all others. So here's where we're going to go in this sermon series. Today is just a little introduction. I hope your appetite has been... Stirred for more. And then we'll have three follow on sermons to reflect on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But I want to close today with one more question, and I'll be brief. What is our response to the doctrine of the Trinity? Let me just read you Paul's, which is ours, which is worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which we has which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of his glory. Father in heaven, the Apostle Paul could not help but to burst forth in praise a Coke bottle that had been all shaken up and then the top just came right off Father that is the appropriate response to the Trinity not who cares but oh my God this is you and so we thank you and we praise you our God that you are one in three. We thank you, Father, for your plan of redemption. We thank you, Son, for accomplishing it. We thank you, Spirit, for applying it to our hearts. We worship you today because you are worthy of all of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.